Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. And this last week, <laughs> Carrie, it's been a rough week. <laughs> and we, we had an election night episode uh, ahead of last Tuesday. It was, it was election night exactly a week ago. And we, um, we were looking at the potential. Uh, we were trying to ask a couple questions, right, Carrie? Remember, we were, are suburban women going to stay with the Democrats? Are Trump voters going to turn out and vote? Are base Democrats going to turn out and vote? And when all was said and done, it seems like those questions were all answered in not the way we wanted them to be answered. No, so, no, no. The and, answers were bad, and, and I blame the universe, personally. You blame the universe. Yeah. Uh, because, broadly speaking, Trump voters did turn out. Uh, in big numbers, our voters, the, the drop off between Biden voters and voters for Democratic candidates was huge. So our voters didn't turn out. And Wait. there's science that suburban women may have may have reverted. Or at least Republican Party. some some did. Yeah. So he, can I and just it, ask a question, though? Before you do, I'm just going to quickly say that in today's show, we're pretty soon we're going to bring on two very uh noted experts to talk about the result and what that means for 2022. That's going to be Drew Linzer. He is the chief data officer at Civics. He built his entire polling operations part of Daily Coast. And we had <laughs> we have some insight into what the electorate looks like now and hopefully maybe even some ideas of what might flip the electorate back in the Democrats' direction over the next year. We also have David Neer. He is Daily Coast political director is in charge of our down ballot that is congressional and state level electoral coverage. And so obviously this is right in his bellywick. So we're going to have those guys come on in a couple of minutes. Now, Carrie, you can ask your question. Yeah, just to clarify. So you're talking about, you know, not as many Democratic voters coming out compared to what Biden drew out. But if you compare McAuliffe Summers to Ralph Northam in 2017, he improved the numbers by about 200,000 votes, roughly. And the problem is, is that Glenn Youngkin, uh, you know, improved on Ed Gillespie's vote count by, I think, around 550,000 votes. So I'm still unclear about whether we saw like a severe drop off in in Democratic turnout, whether the whether it was like both Democratic turnout and some reversion of the suburbs back to the Republicans or if it was more one than the other. So I don't know if you want to answer that question or if you want to bring in Drew and David. Yeah, and- I'll bring them in in a second. The, I mean, one of the problems with analyzing an election a week after the election is that we still don't have complete data. I mean, we don't even have a finished vote count in New Jersey. Amazingly, unbelievably so. Not sure what the heck's going on up there, but they haven't been able to even finish their vote count just but yet. We so, do, but we do know that Phil Murphy won. The Democrat won there. We just don't yeah. know what the final final count is yeah yeah we don't know if he only won by three points or if he won by five points and either way he was supposed to win by 10 so here's the thing yes it's true that terry mcauliffe got two hundred thousand more votes than the previous democrat running for governor in virginia four years ago that's true it's also true though that he got eight hundred thousand less votes than joe biden did while Youngkin, the Republican, got only three hundred thousand less votes than donald trump did so the question is did the base turn out or not? You know, somebody may say, well, the base, how do you even define the base, right? That's, a, that's actually a real question. Is the base the kind of people that will turn out in 2017 and 2021 when a lot of people don't even know there's an election going on because it's a weird, odd number year? Is that the base? Or is the base, I would define the base as being our core democratic constituencies, you know, black voters, young voters, uh, single women, Latinos, uh, Asian, other other uh, voters of color, um, in urban, 
in urban whites. That's what I would consider our base. I don't think we have enough information yet. I haven't seen it anyway. That would indicate whether those constituencies did actually turn out and vote at the same rate as 2000, 2020. I would suspect, given that we lost 800,000 votes, that they probably did not. And there's always going to be drop-off in an off number of years. It's just inevitable. What I'm worried about is less that Terry McAuliffe got 200,000 more votes than Democrats did four years ago in a gubernatorial election in Virginia. I am more worried that Joe Biden got 800,000 votes that somehow we couldn't turn out again uh, last Tuesday. And in, in New Jersey, it's even worse. Um, Joe Biden got about 1.2 million more votes than Phil Murphy yeah, but like did. Like you said, there's always going to be drop off. I mean, there's always going to I mean, the, the idea that we're going to be able to recreate Biden's numbers next year in the midterms, I think, is, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to do that. That would be OK if they didn't do such a good job of keeping most of their voters. That's I, I agree. I agree. I just yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to compare, you know, a, a presidential election that <laughs> included Donald Trump and turnout in that election to, you know, I mean, we're both saying the same thing different ways, which is you're focusing on, you know, Youngkin and how many how many less votes did he get than Trump? And, you know, I'm focusing on Yunkin and in how many more votes he got from Ed Gillespie. Right. So we're I mean, so we're yeah. saying a version of the same thing, but I just don't think we can. I don't know that we can judge whether or not we really had terrible turnout um, in an election where we at least improved by 200,000 votes. I mean, I'm talking about the base now, but we don't yeah. know. We don't know for sure. Yeah. yeah, we don't know. And and there there was improvement, at least in New Jersey. I mean, 200,000 more votes. Somebody came out and voted, right? You know right. who those people are. I would consider that they're probably core base people. Probably, it's just they do a better job. And this has always been the worry: if they got that Trump out, and the Trump vote didn't come out in two thousand during the Trump years, unless Trump was on the ballot. This is the first right. time that Trump wasn't mm-hmm. on the ballot that they were still motivated to turn out. And there's something happening there, and it's scary for us. I think and, that's one of the worst. That was one of the worst outcomes. Absolutely. Among, so among let's them. let's let's bring in these two experts because they, they're going to make this conversation that much more informative. Uh, Drew Linzer is the chief data officer at Civics. He literally builds his incredible polling operation, polling and research operation uh, for Daily Coast, and they're doing unbelievable research and it gives us insight into the electorate in a way that. Uh, that is almost unfair for somebody like Carrie and me that are sort of trying to like tease out trends and what's happening in the world to have that sort of inside look into public opinion. And our other guest is David Neer. He's our, um, he's our political director. He runs Daily Coast Elections, the premier coverage team of, of congressional elections in the country, bar none. I, I believe that 100%. And I'm not being hyperbolic just because it's part of Daily Coast. I actually think these guys are the best at their job. David and Drew, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, uh, David, I'll start with you. So, obviously, things didn't go our direction. Um, as I mentioned a little bit earlier when we were introducing the segment, we don't have complete data right now yet, I don't think, right? So we're still running a little bit blind. I, I, what I do see is a lot of people trying to justify their narratives. Like there's enough information that no matter what your position was going in, whether it's Democrats need to be more moderate or Democrats need to be more liberal, there's some bit of information that might justify reinforcing that narrative. I don't think I've seen anything for sure. What's your initial gut reaction to the results last week? And what does that say about the electorate heading into 2022. I have yet to see an election where partisans of all stripes don't say that the results uh, reinforce their preferred narrative. So uh, if that hadn't happened, that would have been a big shock. I think that the most likely answer is probably the most boring one and the most frustrating one, which is we have seen time and time again, going back many decades, that the electorate turns against the party in power, and that's defined as whoever holds the White House, because it's the most visible symbol of power in this country, uh, during off-year elections, uh, in odd-numbered elections and in midterms. And it's uh, a very predictable pattern, and we've seen it in Virginia over and over again. 
And that's almost certainly uh, what happened here. The reason why it's frustrating is because people don't really, and this includes people who studied the issue for a long time, political scientists, researchers, researchers of all stripes, don't really have a good sense of why this happens. They have a fancy term for it. They call it thermostatic public opinion, like the thermostat in your house going up and down in response to who's in the White House and who's out of the White House. And no one is quite sure why this happens. There are some sort of vague theories. We can also imagine the grass always being greener, but it is uh, simply a reality. And you ask, what does it mean for 2022? And I would say we can't be naive. It certainly doesn't mean good things, but also it's not a surprise. Uh, we don't have to look at just Virginia. We can look at midterms in pre uh, by presidential administration going back for the longest time. And there have been very, very few exceptions when uh, the party in power has uh, actually gained seats. They almost all That party almost always loses seats. So I don't think Virginia told us anything that we weren't expecting to already learn. And, and, and same with New Jersey. But there, I have a few sort of uh, nuances to add on to that, but I want to uh, let you uh, turn things over to Drew if you'd like. Let me just ask one quick follow-up, which is, do you think it was any worse than usual? Or was it just kind of in line in the basic, you know, that party when the White House gets smacked? You know, was it just sort of like kind of part of that whole deal? I, I do not think that it was any worse than usual. And I want to point to one particular result, uh, which is that there was a third state that had a, a statewide election on Tuesday. Quit Didn't it, quit it. That's not but true. For real, for real, uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania had a race for the state Supreme Court. And those are partisan races where you have a Democrat on the ballot and a Republican on the ballot. They're identified that way. It's not some obscure, weird judicial candidates. You don't know who they're, what their ideology is. And uh, Republicans won that race. It was for a GOP held seat, but they won it by like one and a half points. And in Pennsylvania last year, you remember Joe Biden won by like one point. So the swing was really, really small in Pennsylvania. So why do we have these big swings in New Jersey and Virginia, but not in Pennsylvania? You know, I, I don't know that there's an answer to that question, but the Pennsylvania result says to me that, yeah, you know, things weren't good, but it wasn't nightmarishly terrible. Uh, you know, if Democrats uh, had fallen 10 or 15 points in Pennsylvania, you know, I, I, I might be more worried, but that isn't what happened. So let me let me bring Drew in. And, and so for those who don't know, civics, it's civics with a Q. Uh, you can go to civicswithaq.com, civics.com. And you can see a lot of the, the, the survey research that we uh, that we surface publicly and including that is approval ratings for Joe Biden. And I'm pretty sure that civics was the first polling firm to really start catching a downward trend for Joe Biden long after uh, some of the more traditional pollsters still had Biden in positive territory. We were seeing his popularity drop significantly, particularly with um, with independent voters. And Drew, from that point, I mean, he, he was saying like, "We're in trouble because if if Joe Biden's numbers continue to go down, this is not going to be a pretty election." Drew, you can you talk a little bit about how you see that correlation between Joe Biden's approval numbers and election results? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not good. And um, I hate to be the person who has to be the bearer of bad news uh, in this case, but Joe Biden's approval rating has been gradually falling for months now, one week after another, it just keeps dropping bit by bit. And the lower it goes, the worst Democrats are poised to do in the next election. Um, we have seen independents moving strongly away from Joe Biden, um, from being net uh, positive on his approval uh, when he took office to quite a bit negative. Uh, and young people are, are really moving away from Joe Biden, as are to a certain extent now people of color, voters of color. Um, this, is, this is not... Uh, you know, this is not half. This is this doesn't have to happen. Um, there are reasons for it, and we've been doing polling to try to understand why this is happening. But the descriptive trend uh, that Joe Biden's job approval rating is down—it's—it's it's clear, and um, and it, it it does not mean good things for uh, Democrats' twenty twenty two election chances. 
Well, there, okay. there's the obvious uh, follow-up there. <laughs> so we've been doing, yeah, we've been doing polling to to uh, see what is moving those numbers. So, can you talk a little bit about what that might be? Um, yeah, so Civics does a, a monthly poll with Daily Coast, uh, where we dig deeper into some of the title issues that are, uh, you know, that are coming up in the news and in politics. And back in August, when Joe Biden's approval rating was really starting to turn. Um, meaningfully and consistently downward, we thought, well, let's let's run a poll where we ask nationwide what people think about his policies, because maybe there is some part of this very aggressive Biden uh, policy agenda that you know congressional Democrats were strongly behind that people just they didn't like, especially around some of these conversations now around, around this idea that what Democrats should do to earn voter support is just be do popular things. So let's see what of what they're doing, what's popular and what's not popular. Uh, and so we ran this survey in August where we listed out a dozen different issues, uh, uh, policy um, uh, proposals, uh, things that the Democrats had done uh, during the first, you know, the first six months of eight months of Joe Biden's presidency. And it turned out that overwhelmingly people supported those things. So Biden was do, and congressional Democrats were doing popular things. And despite that, his job approval rating was falling. Uh, we went back just a few weeks ago and did a follow-up to this survey, where instead of asking about what uh, policies uh, the Democrats and the Biden administration have been putting forward, we asked people simply, what are you satisfied with and dissatisfied with in your daily lives? Putting the focus not so much on the actions that politicians are taking, but on what people are confronting in their daily lives. And for this, we tested... I think 16 separate uh, aspects of, of American life, everything from uh, gas prices to uh, access to health care, racial relations. The even, state of our democracy. Yeah, the, well, yeah, uh, the state of our democracy, just your freedom to live how you like. And what we found was a couple of, of real interesting patterns. Um, the overwhelmingly, the top, the most widespread problem, source of dissatisfaction among Americans right now is the state of our democracy. Democrats, Republicans, everyone feels that the state of democracy is, is not how they want it to be. Uh, just below that are a whole host of, of problems around just the cost of everything, the cost of gasoline, the cost of consumer goods, the cost of health care. And related to that, people are very dissatisfied around their savings. Uh, there was a report that just came out that debt is through the roof um, and over wealth inequality. So these economic issues are, are people's top concerns right now. The lowest areas of concern for people right now are some real traditional policy areas, their jobs, their housing situation, even the direction of the pandemic. People are saying that they're satisfied with that, that stuff. And maybe that's a credit to the Biden administration's work on it earlier this year. But what, is the, what they are dissatisfied about now is, 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 you know, prices, the costs, inequality, the savings, and it's driving discontentment. So let me just make one distinction there is that, um, and I agree with everything Drew said, but uh, in terms of the pandemic, you know, people are kind of separating out like how at risk do it seems like people are separating out how at risk do I feel health wise about the pandemic versus how is the pandemic affecting the economy? I, I don't know that people are making this direct connection between, for instance, gas prices or supply chain issues and the fact that there's, you know, inflation related to that. Um, but when you when you ask them about the pandemic in particular, um, just 36 percent of people said that they were dissatisfied with the situation of how the pandemic was being you know, handled in their local area. And that was really low, when, especially when you compare it to something like, you know, the state of the democracy where 88% people said that was a problem or gas prices where 78% of people said that that was a problem. So those were the top two problems for people. Um, and, and, so, and the pandemic just did not figure into that in the same way. So, so the Biden administration has effectively taken not all of the problems associated with the pandemic off the table, but the sort of immediate health concern, the people who want the, the vaccines, the people who want 
you know, they feel decent about what's going on. They don't feel immediately at risk. And the people, of course, who don't want the vaccine and whatever, they don't care. No, it's true. In the August survey that I was mentioning, the area where Biden got the most credit and the most approval from Democrats as well as Republicans was on his handling of the pandemic and the effort to get vaccines out. David, um, I'm, I'm struck by this debate over debate over gas prices, right? I know Fox News has been hammering it relentlessly. Um, I know it showed up in, in various campaigns. And it, it, I, I wonder how much of that is Republicans' ability to weaponize just basic economy, right? Because, I mean, these are the same people that scream socialism. So what government's supposed to what nationalize the means of petroleum production <laughs> to bring down prices, but, but no, that this is somehow conservatives have like are in a absolute frenzy about oil prices, but they're not much different than they were early in the Trump years. And there's like nary a, you know, a complaint from conservatives about gas prices when Trump was president, how much of that is, is just Republicans better able to tap into consumer angst, and how much is it just that basic, the party in power is going to get the blame no matter what. And Democrats didn't need to make gas prices an issue because we had plenty of material to work with with Donald Trump. And that uh, conservatives weren't, you know, they're going to be partisan. So they're only going to care about gas prices when when they can use it to attack Democrats. Is, is, is there something inherently better about conservatives ability to tap into to a voter's economic anxiety? Uh, I think gas prices are a particularly vivid issue. Uh, my colleague David Jarman quipped the other day that it's the one economic indicator that you're confronted with in two foot high numbers uh, every single day, uh, every time you take a drive. And so I, 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 I think uh, it, there, there's less of a lift for Republicans to make that an issue. And in fact, people just feel that on their own, whether or not, you know, there are campaigns out there uh, stoking those feelings that, you know, it's just costs more to gas up. Uh, and that hits you in a very vivid way. And most people are, you know, um, they, they, they can't live without their cars. So I think the, the real question is, you know, why are Republicans so good at exploiting that and what can Democrats do to counter it? And I think this, frankly, it gets to a very, very core issue of why the progressive movement exists at all and why sites like Daily Coast sprung up in the first place, which is we're not going to be be successful going out there and saying, uh, oh, gas prices are actually haven't gone up that much compared to what they were in the Trump era. People would really be insulted by that and they'd laugh at us. We need our own progressive infrastructure to bring issues of importance to the American public and flog those things and frankly place blame on Republicans for when they're doing things terribly and adverse to the American people's interest. You know, after the election results, my strong feeling was Democrats need to place the blame where it belongs on Republicans for prolonging the pandemic. You have a political party that is manifestly pro-COVID. And Carrie, I understand that, you know, uh, Biden's success in fighting the pandemic uh, has helped uh, make many voters uh, feel uh, pleased about the direction things are going. But there are still plenty who aren't. Um, and so I feel like uh, the, the, the answer to things like Republican ginning people up over things like gas prices has to be that we create our own system of really putting the right issues in front of the American people and making them, you know, feel that it's OK to be angry or upset uh, about these things and that the, the, are things that should motivate them at the polls. Yeah, I, I, I am. I did not mean to suggest that. Democrats shouldn't be running on that. I feel like it kind of faded. It faded as an issue for people. And instead of Democrats being like, we did this and we did it without any Republican help, you know, pe voters kind of weren't reminded of that. And, you know, we, we all know that Republicans are particularly good. They have like this special rage <laughs> DNA thing that like Democrats don't seem to don't seem to be able to tap into quite as easily. But, um, you know, another another issue that I wanted to ask about was education and whether or not I mean, obviously there was critical race theory became a big thing on the on the right. Um, and I you know, as far as I can tell. 
the Republican takeaway is we need to run on critical race theory and education. Okay. I see a lot, I see a lot of flaws in that, but I wanted to hear, you know, from both uh, from a macro level from Drew, but also what you took away, uh, David, uh, at, a, at a more micro level about how education really played out in Virginia and whether or not, you know, what Democrats can do about that. Yeah, you can start with Drew on that macro level. Okay, sorry, Drew, yeah. Yeah, well, we we included uh, an item uh, in this last survey testing if people are satisfied or dissatisfied with, as we put it, the quality of education and what is being taught in your local schools. And we found 58% of people saying that they were dissatisfied with that 16% satisfied. You know, when you get a number that's as low as 16% satisfied, then this isn't just uh, Republicans uh, acting upset about what they perceive to be the teaching of critical race theory. So there, there's something there, um, but it's tied in with cultural perspectives that, um, that materialize in other ways. They materialize in attitudes around race um, in terms of just, as we mentioned a moment ago, what it what democracy in America is right now and how people are unhappy about that. And in what as we described it also in this policy, your freedom to live life the way you want, where a majority of Americans are saying that they are dissatisfied with and we worded it very vaguely on purpose, just whatever that means to you. Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with your freedom to live life the way you want? And a majority of Americans said that that they're dissatisfied. So there is something about the cultural mindset right now that that people maybe they're not putting you know exactly putting their finger on it. Maybe it's about race, about education, freedom, whatever it is. Um, but people are feeling it, and I think that that is coming out in some of their more pessimistic perspectives on American politics right now. I think Republicans have relied on inflaming voters with race-related issues for the longest time. Uh, you know, in previous elections, including the last gubernatorial election in Virginia, it was immigration. Uh, a few years before that, uh, it was Ebola. There have been various uh, migrant caravans. There was the quote-unquote ground zero mosque. Uh, and so it's just... Uh, it's a recurrent theme. And the reason why it's a recurrent theme is that uh, it really does often work for them. Now, of course, four years ago in Virginia, they got absolutely thumped in the gubernatorial election. But, you know, again, Trump had just uh, taken the White House and it was natural to expect a, a bounce back. I think what's been so frustrating for progressives and Democratic activists is the, the, this term critical race theory. And it's very easy to say, uh, yes, it's an academic framework. It's uh, uh, taught in graduate schools. I learned about it in law school. That was the uh, first I ever heard about it and say, of course, it's not being taught uh, in schools, but uh, in uh, public schools. But the problem is that uh, the right is also really, really good at coming up with code. And they have used this code word very, very cleverly uh, to mean things that it, it doesn't actually mean. Uh, you know, it's sort of uh, a more sophisticated version of let's go, Brandon. And I think that uh, I'm not ready to say what Democrats answer to that should be. But the answer can't simply be it clearly wasn't effective to say, no, of course, they're not teaching critical race theory in third grade. Uh, Democrats are going to need to need to figure out something deeper than that to understand exactly why this particular weaponizing of racial fears is working so well. Um, and, uh, you know, there may not be a good answer. The answer may be we have to take a different approach and flood the zone with an entirely different issue. Can I try something out? Because I, I wrote about this over the weekend. And, you know, I mean, like to David's point. This is Republicans run on this like every four years and they've been running on it since the silent majority came back, you know, and Nixon and all that stuff. Right. To after the civil rights movement. Um, and I feel like the the formula for Democrats is always to go bigger and broader and talk about shared interests. Right. So I heard McCarthy you know, saying, oh, we're going to Kevin McCarthy, the the um, House GOP minority leader saying, well, we're going to come up with a parent's bill of rights. And I started thinking about that. And, you know, I heard something on Pod Save America. And then I kind of did a riff off of it. And, 
you know, I feel like Democrats' response to a parent's bill of rights is already included in the Build Back Better bill if they can just pass it. And, you know, it it is, we believe every parent should have uh, the access to quality, affordable education for their child. We believe every parent should have access to quality, affordable child care. We believe every parent should have the peace of mind to know that they can care for their child if they fall sick without going into debt. Like these are all big universal themes. And I feel like the Democratic Parents' Bill of Rights is already in the Build Back Better bill. Um, Except it's branded as Build Back Better, which is stupid as heck. And well, Parents' okay. Bill of Rights is actually kind of cool. No, right. It is, <laughs> yeah, right. Genius. If only I thought of it nine months ago. No, I'm just saying, like, I, 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 I but, but, you know, it is for, for every House candidate, they get to sell the parts of that bill that they want to sell that they feel are like most relevant to their constituencies. So even though this has been kind of a messaging disaster nationally, locally, people can pick out the parts of that bill that they like and they can go after it. And if education is going to be the issue, well, then, yeah, Democrats have a parent's bill of rights in that bill. We are here with David Neer. He's a political director of uh uh, of Daily Kos and is in charge of Daily Kos Elections, the premier uh, team covering um, congressional down ballot elections across the country. They are the best, bar none. We also have Drew Linzer. He is the chief data of, uh, chief data officer at uh, Civics. I don't know why I'm stumbling over my own company's <laughs> departments. I'm just so excited uh, to have him on here. Uh, Drew is in charge of civics, civics with a Q. You can check out civics.com and see a lot of this research. And, and what's different about what civics does than any other pollsters, we poll daily. So we can actually track what actually moves public opinion. And that's why we've been seeing sort of Joe Biden uh, sort of trailing off in the polls uh, long before other pollsters had picked up that trend. So this question about education is actually really, I think, critical to 2022 because Demo- Republicans were losing ground in the suburbs and Democrats had historically had an advantage on education. If you look at congr- uh, gubernatorial elections in 2019 in Kentucky, Louisiana, two incredibly red states at the federal level, Democrats won those races, those governor races, running on a platform heavy on education. And so Republicans have historically been very good at sort of looking at what advantages Democrats have and just crushing them. And so this uh, this uh, this critical race theory nonsense. And again, we just talked about how calling it nonsense is probably not the best response to it. But for the sake of this conversation, it is nonsense. That nonsense actually has had the double sort of impact of both. um, clawing back some of the support they were losing in the suburbs and also in undermining a critically important democratic issue advantage, just broadly speaking. And that's incredibly dangerous. Drew, would, when you're looking, go ahead. Can, Carrie. can I just make one clarification? I would, I would be careful about saying that it was all about critical race theory. I'm not so sure that people being dissatisfied with education was just a critical race theory thing. And one thing just just at one data point, of course, was that, you know, I think Virginia had had like people had had people out of school, had closed down schools and had been very aggressive about that during the pandemic. And I think they were like seventh in the nation, had the seventh longest or something, something close to that. They were in the top 10 of how often, how many days were missed by kids. And I think there was a lot of parental anger over that, even though it was done with the best of intentions. So I, I think that could have played in. Anyway, I just wanted to, no, I want you're, people to walk away and think yeah. critical race theory was the only thing. You're absolutely right. And there was sort of a two-track campaign, too, where Youngkin publicly was very vague about parental choice in schools, while on Twitter they were, you know, screaming about, you know, black people and being taught about race and slavery in school and making white kids feel bad about themselves. So there's definitely a dog whistle component. And again, it's early. It's unclear about what moved. But Youngkin ran a campaign on education, which Republicans historically haven't really done. Uh, Drew, I just mentioned how civics sort of tracks day by day. And we talked about Joe Biden's dropping poll numbers. 
do you have any sense? Is there any, so the conventional wisdom would be that Build Back Better didn't pass quickly enough. And so he's lost support because of that. And maybe because of the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, that that also hurt him. We actually have more granular insight into what moved his numbers. What, what's your view looking at our data into what actually is hurting Joe Biden right now? Well, what I think it is, is there were a large number of people who at the last election were willing to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump because they didn't like Donald Trump. Um, a lot of young people, especially, uh, but also independents who wanted to get this country uh, in, moving in a direction that was not the Trump direction. And when, uh, you know, when, when Biden won that election, their support was still with him. And I think that whatever hopes or um, expectations that those voters have placed on, on Biden, um, I think that just in a very gradual way, their withdrawal of, of support from him in our, in our polling reflects, uh, you know, that them not having their expectations met. And, um, and the reason I, I focus on that is because there has not been any point in the polling where there's been a sharp drop. A lot of pundits put a lot of energy into the Afghanistan withdrawal. Well, we're, we're like you said, we're polling every day. If there was going to be a sharp change in opinion, in response to that one event, we would have seen it as a sharp change in opinion. And, and it wasn't there. We, we do occasionally see sharp changes in opinion on certain issues uh, around major events. It was just a gradual secular trend. And the trend is among independents most strongly, among young people. When I say young people, that's, that's the pollster's conception of young people. So that's anyone under 35. If you're, if you're under 35, you're a young person. Um, so people under 35 who, uh, who you know voted for Biden initially supported him and, and are now saying that they're not happy, or at least that they're neither happy nor unhappy. They're, they're indifferent. They're not willing to commit to saying they're unhappy. They're just not approving. Uh, and, and again, uh, voters of color, core Democratic constituencies who, who I, you know, my, my understanding of public opinion is that they had expected something more, whatever they expected uh, they're not seeing it come to pass. And so more and more of them are, are not approving of the job uh, that they see Biden doing. And um, I mean, I think the, the, po- the way to put a positive spin on this is that because the trend has been gradual, presumably, if the Biden administration and congressional Democrats uh, can change course, start addressing the current problems that people are facing, and focus on what people's needs are right now, uh, they might win some of those folks back. We know exactly who they are and we can find out uh, or, you know, even just look back, see what those, uh, what those voters uh, priorities and interests are. Cancel student debt. Cancel student debt. uh, I think, no, I actually don't think that's one of the main points, although that is one of them. Um, (laughs) Voters very concerned about issues uh, of the environment. And climate change uh, is a major one, uh, and and justice related issues. You know, there's a path there. Yeah, I, I, I just want to say that it, it is true that approval rating it started it started to part ways disapproval and and approval start uh, started to part ways right around the beginning of May. So it was a slow, gradual thing. It was uh, just to give people a sense of how long that took and how long before the Afghanistan withdrawal it it, it started. Right. Yeah, absolutely. David, um, I think one of the stories that came out of, of last Tuesday is that the two major elections, in fact, probably all, all three, including Pennsylvania, Trump really was not a factor in the sense that the Republicans really kept him at arm's length. Right? Trump wouldn't care about a state Supreme Court election, so clearly he wasn't playing there. Uh, Youngkin was like, paranoid about Trump showing up, right? Like they were doing everything to keep him out of the state. And New Jersey didn't seem to be competitive. So so the Republican candidate there ran an explicitly uh, never Trumper type campaign and he is a never Trumper. So they there was a bit of a, a, a if it was an experiment, unfortunately, we don't have a control group. We don't have the, the full Trump state that we could point to and compare, right? All we have is 
a bunch of moderate states to liberal states where Republicans ran the way you run in a moderate to liberal state, which is moderately keeping Trump at arm's length. Um, Kerry, it's been on this beat really, really, you know, really hard. This idea that Republicans can't avoid that next year. Like Trump will be a factor. Uh, do we have any sense at all? Like, what's your take on this? Like, Trump is a factor next year. Can Republicans keep their distance? Are they going to be able to? Should they? Should they not? Uh, Trump's going to loom large no matter what. Like, what's your take on that? I, I agree. And one thing I want to emphasize before getting into 2022, you mentioned a few minutes ago about Louisiana and Kentucky in 2019. It's really important to remember that gubernatorial elections and elections for state office still show much more elasticity uh, than elections for federal office. There are far more Republican governors in blue states and Democratic governors in red states than there are Democratic senators in red states and Republican senators in blue states. And so that's uh, very important to, to bear in mind that there is just more fluidity and flexibility in the way that these elections go down. And next year, we should probably see a return. There's every reason to uh, believe we'll see a return to the normal kinds of partisan polarization that we have in federal elections. And to your point about uh, and Carrie's point about uh, how will Trump loom over the race? We've already seen it, even in looking back toward 2021 and even today. And what am I talking about? Well, just today, the GOP's prize recruit for the Senate in New Hampshire was uh, Governor Chris Sununu. And McConnell had uh, tried recruiting him desperately all year long. And Rick Scott, who's chair of the NRSC, and Sununu played this game with them for months and months and months. And now, finally, in November, he announced today that he's not going to run uh, against uh, Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, who's one of the most vulnerable Democrats up next year. And I'm speculating in part here, but I can say this for a fact. Sununu's running for re-election as governor next year. Trump's not going to care about that race. However, he had all Trump had already said that this uh, crazy retired general, Don Bolduck, who is already running for Senate and tried running for Senate two years ago, that he loves him. He's a great candidate, et cetera. So Sununu was almost certainly going to face Trump shitting on him uh, next year you know, uh, running against this crazy guy, Bolduck. And we've seen that happen over and over again. It happened in Georgia with Trump embracing Herschel Walker. Um, you know, the, 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 the GOP has really had a, a hard time getting their top recruits. And even when they have had good recruits, they're still facing primaries from less than stellar candidates. In a close race, that could make all the difference. Maggie Hassan won by like a thousand votes in 2016. So yeah, um, uh, Trump has already had an impact on, on 2022 and I expect it will remain large. I mean, what was interesting about Sununu too, just really quickly, is that he didn't just say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to stay with governor. Like he decided to like shit all over the Senate on McConnell. Uh, like he wouldn't, it was, it was like scorched earth. It was bizarre. It was, it was delicious. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, it, I mean, it, he was, yeah. go ahead, Gary. Sorry, it was no, it was so delicious. And he, he said, he said, you know, he would rather stay governor of New Hampshire and start, you know, and keep getting wins for the people of New Hampshire instead of um, slowing down, ending up on Capitol Hill and debating partisan politics without results. And I thought. Debating partisan politics without results is like the perfect brand for McConnell in the Senate. Like there's no one who is better at getting no results and, you know, debating partisan politics. He's just I mean, it was it, it, to me, too. It was just an epic collapse of the establishment. Right. While Trump is cementing Herschel Walker for Georgia and, you know, and has endorsed Sean Parnell, both of which have, a, you know, allegedly abusive histories for Pennsylvania you know, the establishment is going out and trying to recruit Chris Sununu, who was their, you know, their their ace. And the people who are like sanish Republicans are like, mm -mm, I don't want it. Drew, is there anything in the polling that can speak to a Trump effect or is there can you even ask a question that might sort of get at that? It seems it'd be difficult, but I don't know if you have any ideas. This takes me to another bad place, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, because even though Trump is out of office, we've continued to track his 
favorable ratings, not his job approval rating anymore. He doesn't have the job, but his favorable ratings. And I can just tell you that his favorable ratings are as strong as ever. Uh, there's been no more than a couple point wiggle here or there. Uh, and though, even then it's only among independents. So um, if, if anyone was hoping that uh, Trump would leave office and and Americans would, uh, you know, not feel that they had to express support for him anymore in the polls. That has not happened, and he still commands support out there. Um, that I think, you know, in certain certain corners of his base, and really third, at least a third of this country is as strong as it ever was. But is is the Trump effect really about supporting Trump, or is it about mobilizing Democrats? to turn and vote, right? Sia Torelli, whatever, Jack, the Republican candidate in, in New Jersey was very clearly, nobody was going to confuse him for a Trump um, acolyte. Youngkin went out of his way to affirmatively distance himself from Trump and, and whoever kept Trump out of Virginia for the Republicans, like, like they, they did God's work because it saved them, I think, that election. The Same question work. is- yeah, <laughs> did Satan's work. Is 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 um is there any sense of what a a Trump backed candidate that you can literally run as this is Trump Trump's pick person, what kind of effect that might have on the polls or in turnout, or is that just really hard to gauge in the polling um there, well there's just been uh there's just been no change. So I think that if you want to extrapolate from okay. 2020, uh, go ahead. Um, people who liked him in 2020 still like him, and people who don't, don't like him or didn't like him then uh, don't like him now. And, um, uh, you know, if you're the Republican Party and you can bank uh, Trump votes in some of these states, especially when we're talking about some people who don't like the Republican Party, they are voting, they're, they're conservatives, but they don't, they say that they don't like the Republican Party, but they like Trump. And if the Republicans can bank those votes and add to them by running a candidate who maybe doesn't seem quite so Trumpy uh, and can appeal to a broader coalition, I just, uh, you know, I, I hope that I hope then that Democrats are able to mobilize against that. And, you know, perhaps perhaps Democrats can. Um, but what Democrats are up against, I think, is is very clear. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Because that's terrifying. Well, I agree with what you were uh, alluding to earlier, Marcos, that I think Trump is about motivating the Democratic side. It's not about trying to win over any voters in the middle. It's about making sure that our regular base voters turn out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that people who were afraid of Trump in 2020 people who uh, maybe were less regular voters, but uh, reliably lean toward Democrats. I, th I still think that uh, he can and probably will have an impact in terms of the campaigns we run, but it has to be a multi-pronged campaign. You know, I, th I think one, one of the criticisms McAuliffe got, and I'm not sure if it's right or not, but was that uh, he was too heavily focused on, on trying, uh, tying Youngkin to Trump. And, you know, uh, that probably worked with a lot of voters. It just didn't work with enough voters. And so it's a different electorate, a very different electorate in a, like I was saying before, in a federal midterm election than in an odd year gubernatorial election. Um, but also uh, to, to Drew's point, you know, the, the candidates who are emerging now as the likely GOP nominees in these Senate races, uh, n really none of them are going to be able to stiff arm Trump and say that they uh, had nothing to do with him. Most of them uh, who are leading in the polls right now or who are likely to win uh, have Trump's endorsement. Um, you know, I, I think uh, Rick Scott would be very, very lucky uh, if uh, some of his more establishment types, like Kerry was talking about, make it through the primaries. I don't really see that happening. Now, of course, of course, we have to be careful what we wish for. Herschel Walker could become a United States senator. Of course he could. Josh but Randall in Ohio. <laughs> oh, my God. Don't even don't even get I mean, me started. There, it's we got to do a whole show on just the shit show that it's a Republican Senate we field, but yeah, have, have me back. But you know, uh, if we're, if we're going to have close races, you at least want candidates with real vulnerabilities that you can try to exploit. Yeah. And no one's going to be able to put on a fleece vest 
it, that I have seen so far and walk around doing the Yunkin. No, I mean, I can't see, I don't see anyone who so far emerging who's like that mild mannered, you know, whatever Yunkin pulled off. Um, and I, I just want to say something about Trump's soaring approval ratings. <laughs> It's, Nothing that's so, not soaring, not soaring. Sorry. They're decent, though. OK, flat line, right? Flat, not yeah. not not total death for Trump. Nobody's changed but, their minds. No, but what I, what I will say is, is that it, the best thing for Trump's approval ratings has has been him not being in the public spotlight. I mean, people forget how like horrible he is. Right. And his 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 believers, his true believers, they're not going anywhere. They they never stop supporting him. But. I think he's actually benefit. His approvals have benefited from not being, you know, out there. And so I don't want anybody to be any of our folks, right, to be worried about the idea of Trump getting out there and campaigning. We want him to remind people what a like really loser, terrible, like ridiculous buffoon of a guy he is. Um, we want people to be reminded of that because it does turn out our base. And I don't know, you know. He, Apparently, his voters are fired up anyway. So, yeah, and, turn out. Yeah. And to be clear, when I say that they're flat, I, you know, his approval or his unfavorable rating is, is 55 percent. And he did lose the last election. So this is this is a guy. Uh, he hasn't lost a ton of support, but it was it's not very high to begin with. We're talking about, you know, a politician with a solid 35, 40 percent of this country that supports him, but no more than that. Yeah, it really goes back to this conversation that Carrie and I have had ongoing for since January 6th. It's just Mitch McConnell could have thrown that anchor, could have supported impeachment, could have suffered maybe some short term pain. But right now, maybe they would have a, a, a slate, an emerging slate of more traditional Yunkin style Republicans uh, that would put them in a better place to take over uh, the, the Senate because we were seeing just how quickly public forgets stuff. I mean, January 6th, we <laughs> you think that would have some more lasting impact on the political, you know, just on the zeitgeist. And, it, and apparently not. Now they're, now they're heroes. They've, they've finally converted these, uh, these people into freedom fighters. So that's one of my big hopes for us retaining the Senate. There's the obvious one. We need to retain the Senate for, for, for legislative reasons. But it would be great for McConnell to actually have to suffer a defeat because he didn't have the balls to do anything about uh, Donald Trump back in January 6th. So we're actually running close to to concluding time. So I actually want to shift really quickly, uh, Dave and Drew, like, do you have any thoughts on what Democrats could do to turn things around and retain control of Congress next year? I'll start with Drew. Yeah, look at who supported uh, Democrats and Joe Biden in, uh, in last November and even in January uh, and do things that those people want, period. <laughs> crazy it's crazy talk <laughs> david so your point about the jan 6 commission democrats just suck at keeping people angry and engaged uh over the issues that they should be so i would uh just like to see uh more relentless messaging like i said uh go on the attack on covid um but just go on the attack in general and when they do pass build back better uh, then they just have to relentlessly, relentlessly sell it. So we have a little more. Uh, that that was actually quicker, more concise answers than I expected. So, Kira, you have time if you have a last last well, set of questions so you want to ask. What I would ask of each of them is: Is there anything that they think has been, you know, that they th they're really focused on having been misunderstood, misconstrued? I mean, there's plenty of like misreporting, and everyone's got a narrative they're trying to fill out. But if there were one point that you were going to bring up that you think matters, both in terms of Virginia and how it might play next year. What do you think is the thing that people have either misunderstood or not focused on enough? I would say that um, I think that the conventional wisdom doesn't realize how bad things are for the Democrats right now. But I think the conventional wisdom also doesn't realize how much time is left and how much of an opportunity Democrats have to turn this around. I think that Democrats need to really be very realistic about the state of the mood of this country, right? That people think this country is off on the wrong track. They think the economy is moving in the wrong direction. They are, they are upset about prices, about their savings, 
about debt, about inequality. This is real. This is really what people are upset about. Let's be, let's be serious and confront that these are the problems that people are facing, that they're falling harder on young people. They're falling harder on communities of color. They're falling harder on political independents who are really up for grabs here. If, if the Democratic leadership and the president can focus on these issues, then there's an opportunity to do something. And, um, you know, I think to a certain extent, they may be a victim of their own success earlier in this year, that people are comfortable in their housing, they're comfortable in their jobs, or even to a surprising extent, comfortable with the pandemic, which, you know, that's just, I don't see it the way, but that's what the data is saying to us. The Democrats worked on those things and got this country to a solid place earlier this year. The concerns have shifted. Let's be honest about where this country is, what the mood of the country is, and get to work on what people need now. Yeah, and David? I'm just going to co-sign what you said. <laughs> All right. Drew, Thanks, yes, David. Wait, a I, wait a second. Oh, that's I not how these shows work, David. I feel shafted. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to have me back on another time then. Oh, Drew Linzer is chief data scientist at civics.com, civics with a Q. Uh, you can go check it out. We have a ton of research on there available for everybody to see. We track some key critical issues on a daily basis. It's actually incredible stuff. You can sort it by 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 party, by uh, by race, by sex, um, education, age. It's really, really, really cool stuff. David Neer is Daily Coast political director. He's in charge of Daily Coast elections, uh, the nation's top coverage team for down ballot election coverage. Thank you both so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie, do you feel more hopeful about next year or um, there's always been this sort of realism, at least the way I've always talked about it. You know, I keep talking about how the average midterm uh, election, first midterm election of the party in the white house loses an average of 30 some seats in the house. I mean, it just it, it is the reality. And we've always sort of offset that with, well, Trump might, you know, negate some of that because people aren't so focused on the incumbent. If the ex the ex president is sitting there mucking around trying to make the election about himself. <laughs> so we just saw an election that last week. And I mean, David made an excellent point about how gubernatorial elections are a different beast. And, you know, we we. You know, nobody looked at Democrats winning Kentucky in Louisiana in 2019 and thought, oh, Democrats might win that. Joe Biden might win that in 2020. I mean, it was it's a different thing. So we don't want to forget that that's an excellent point. But we did see an election where Donald Trump wasn't the factor. It because the Republicans did a good job of sort of distancing themselves. And we saw what happens in a midterm election off your election with the party in the White House, which is you lose because people aren't happy. There's still a hope that next year is going to be a little different. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have hope. I mean, first of all, it's not in my nature not to have hope. But, um, you know, I, I think, look, are we facing really strong headwinds in the House? For sure. Um, the Senate seems a little bit brighter for me. I'm not like no problem, but like there's real reason to hope in the Senate. And and I'm convinced that the atmospherics could you know, a year is a long, long, it's like a lifetime in politics. So long. So long. So long. Okay. Some of the, um, first of all, the education issues, I mean, we know Republicans want to run on this. They're not, they won't be localized in these congressional elections, right? I mean, the, the, your your Congress people, your congressional members, yeah. they don't have anything to do with school systems and things like that. So that's one thing. Um the supply chain issues, the gas prices, inflation may actually be eased by then. 
Um, I think, you know, Democrats, if they pass the Build Back Better bill, will have at least, you know, a good solid six months to figure out how to sell that thing in their districts. Um, and then they can start really pounding it home. And we have to remember that there are things that, you know, Democrats right now, because they've been kind of bickering among themselves, trying to get this really difficult piece of legislation through, have left on the table. There's record job growth right now. It's not perfect. Not every We haven't gained back every job. But President uh, Biden has put on record job growth. The stocks market is really doing well. Trump always used to say, how's your 401k? Well, you know what? People's 401k right now is way better than it was under Trump, under Joe Biden. And on top of that, the pandemic's receding and hopefully it will have receded more. Some of the anger over the schools being closed will have dissipated by then. You know, fingers crossed, right? I don't want to jinx anything, but there's reason to believe that the atmospherics could be a lot better for Democrats next year and that they they have agency to help make it better, too. Yeah, that's a great way to close out this show. Thank you, Carrie, so much. Thanks to David Neer. He's the Daily Coast political director. And Drew Linzer, he is Civics, uh, Chief Data Officer, Civics with a Q.com. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing the show. And thanks you for listening, watching watching the show. Please like, follow, subscribe, whatever your, your app of choice uh, asks you to do. Please do that. You can also check us out at Twitter at Daily Coast or at DailyCoast.com. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.